0: 50 years ago, leaders in medicine had a plan for South Dakota's future. From SDPB, today is Monday, February 26th. This is In The Moment. Coming up this hour, we look at 50 years of a medical school and the impact of four-year degrees on rural South Dakota. We check in with Jewel Cave for a look at the wonders beneath the earth. We pause for the wonders beneath the hooves. An SDSU student studies wildflowers in the diets of ranging cattle. We'll ask about the economic benefits of native flora. Then African-Americans have forged an arts scene of a nation and reinvented it year after year. We will preview a local black arts bash. We'll also check in on the Sanford Underground Research Facility's Ethnobotanical Garden. That one's coming later in the hour. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studios in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. you're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Well, with the exception of a few mood swings in the forecast, we are heading straight into spring's nicer weather. If you're hunting for a warm weather trip this season, you might consider staying right here in your home state. Let's talk about one potential destination now. Amy Murillo is Chief of Interpretation at Jewel Cave National Monument and is with us now on the phone. Amy, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here.
1: Oh yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Tell folks a little bit about the weather where you're at right now because the weather is the top story and sometimes that means it's pretty darn nice.
1: Yeah, I mean outside it's gonna be I think a pretty nice week, a little breezy and um, there is I think a red flag warning but it's at least sunny and warm and kind of continue to kind of be that way little pockets of coldness coming in I think but in the cave it doesn't matter too much inside Joel Cave it stays 49 all year round so it's a pretty great place to be all year.
0: So do you see fluctuations in visitors based on their ability to get there though to, to make the trip?
1: A little bit yeah we have had uh, some times I've just been here about two and a half years at this national park but we have had times In the winter season or, you know, even into the spring, there's still, bits of snow happening where, yeah, we unfortunately have to have like a delayed opening or have to cancel tours for the day because it's just, you know, people can't get on the roads to get to us and we have to call it. But this year it's been really not too crazy and people have been able to to come out and see the, the cave if they want to. So we'll see if the rest of the season continues to be like that.
0: Help people understand what this cave is all about, especially if they're new to the area.
1: Yeah, Jewel Cave has been a national monument since 1908. cave, of course, has existed much longer than that, mm-hmm. <laughs> geologically speaking. Um, and it was found to be a really long cave. In the 50s and 60s, explorations revealed that there's significant mileage. It's now almost 220 miles long. And there's four different cave tours in different areas of the cave that help people to explore more. It is only available to see on a guided tour, and we do recommend booking them in advance on a website called Recreation. But it's a a really neat-looking cave, well-known for its calcite crystal formations and, again, for its length.
0: What's the process of ongoing discovery there? Are there more potential areas to be mapped?
1: There are, yeah. There's airflow studies that have been done that, Make us think. Maybe only about five percent of the cave has been explored. Such a massive amount of air volume. So there's about a dozen volunteer cavers. Who not a dozen at a time, but mm-hmm. in groups of about three to six volunteer cavers will go on trips of up to four days and three nights in the cave and explore more passages. Uh, so we just had a trip. I want to say is within the last month. And so typically every month or two we'll have a trip going, and they find new mileage, will update our signage and our website and put out a release and and uh, continue to make new maps as well.
0: Yeah. So that gets me to this idea of, you know, when you work on interpretation for this site, not only are you dealing with uh, the, the geological history, you're dealing with the, the spiritual history from the indigenous people. You're also dealing with this ongoing, increasing scientific knowledge. So how do you as an interpreter, you know, think about all of that as it intersects in a way that you need to communicate with the, the public as well. It has to be a really exciting place to work for some of those reasons.
1: Oh, definitely. That's basically the word I was going to use. I mean, that's, that's one of the things I love working about Jewel Cave is it is you just have to be enthusiastic and excited and kind of able to think on your feet. Or we have a, you know kind of outlines of our different programs. We have interpretive themes they're fairly broad. And so that kind of allows us as we find new things to kind of, you know, put them in there, consider new programs as well. But yeah, we just have to be really adaptive and and just really excited about this change as we, we move forward with our interpretation. And we normally have a stop or two where we'll talk about, you know, how much mileage we found. And we have like a question of some of our junior ranger books that ask like how much mileage has been found within this last year. And so then we can kind of, keep up with what the changes are happening. But definitely something to think about if we, we do any big changes in our long-range interpretive plan and things. But for now, we just try to be excited and adaptable.
0: All right. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, cave participation on those tours you 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 are not a caver if you're coming to a general tour and there's ways to behave that um are safe and respectful and handle you know contaminants what do you want people to know about visiting the cave
1: yeah i mean we're basically just visiting the cave like i said advanced reservations are great on recreation.gov and then once you've done that it's recommended you really just need to bring yourself something to take pictures with that will fit in a pocket, a camera or a phone, a light jacket because the cave is 49 degrees, and fully enclosed shoes. Tennis shoes, hiking boots great. Uh, only opening on your shoes should be the ones that your foot goes into. No other openings beyond that. We do, unfortunately, have a fungal disease in our bats, white-nose syndrome. So we're trying to prevent the spread of that, and that's why we really love those fully enclosed shoes. You walk across a little cleaning station at the end that rinses off your soles of your shoes. And then just, you know, stay on the trail, no touching any of the cave formations. If you've been on another cave tour, it's, I feel like, pretty pretty typical rules that other caves have. And, yeah, we just want to make sure two people have those good shoes as well for all the stairs. Our most popular tour is the Scenic Tour. It has over 700 stairs. <laughs> so it's good to have good shoes and, and have had a good breakfast or lunch or uh, to traverse all those.
0: Yeah. All right. Any updates on the white-nose syndrome and the bats? Ongoing science now?
1: Yeah, not that I've heard of. I know there have been kind of little articles every now and then that come out, or I guess just big articles, but it's yeah. not like a big solution. Um, but articles talking about, hey, you know, UV rays are showing some effectiveness at, at treating it or slowing the spread. But it seems like back east where it first began, some bats there have maybe like a resilience to it, but in areas where it's newer, then the bats kind of have to have it run its course. So it's a, it's a bummer, and so we're just doing our best at least not to spread it other places. But kind of once it's there, that populations definitely start to see a, a pretty negative way of, of living. It's just, yeah, it's pretty decimating. Mm-mm.
0: All right. Well, uh, we will put links up on our website about Jewel Cave National Monument and uh, the places that people can do to sign up for those tours, Amy Mario. Uh, Chief of Interpretation at Jewel Cave. Thank you so much for the update. We really appreciate that.
1: Yeah, thank you. Have a great day.
0: Now we're going to dive into some interesting research on cow cuisine. Caitlin Presler is a student at South Dakota State University who researched the nutritional relationship between grazing cattle and wildflowers. She studied whether rangeland with wildflowers is better for cattle than rangeland with only grass. And she's with us now from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio in Brookings with an update on that research. Caitlin, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Hi, Lori. How are you?
0: I am doing well. So you are studying at SDSU and you have an opportunity to do some pretty serious research, tell me why you wanted to explore this topic.
2: Well, diversity is kind of a very important thing for um, native plants, diversity, things like that um, in the natural resource world. So we kind of wanted to see if how diversity related to the nutritional value and how it was increasing for cattle and trying to promote it for a producer and so wildflowers kind of stood out to us because they're kind of an iconic species you know you get the big flowers and you hear about pollinators and things like that and you need to promote biodiversity for pollinators but we wanted to focus more on the cattle aspect of that and kind of relating to the economics on Are they having a value to our producers? Are they having a value to our cows' forage yeah. value?
0: And you grew up on an on cow calf operation. Um, had you seen this and in in real life, and then checked in to see if it had been studied or with like help me understand if anything from growing up on that operation made you lean into this particular area of inquiry?
2: Yeah, I just I always loved plants, always loved being out there. Um, As a person that would go out and check cows, I'd always love to stop and see, oh, what's this new plant that I found in our pasture today? What's this gonna do for my cows? Um, And so that's kinda what, why I like to see those and why I wanted to research them. And then we kinda didn't see any research out there on specific species, there's been research on kind of the nutritional value of more diverse area versus a less diverse area, but there's never any research on prairie coneflower is more nutritional value than prairie zinc foil. so.
0: Yeah, all right, so let's talk about, did you have to grow some plants then?
2: Uh, yeah, did, I grew- yeah, tell, tell me about the study. <laughs> yeah, I grew all mm. my plants in our greenhouse here at SDSU, um, and then after I got enough biomass from them we. Harvested them, put them in a oven and dried them, and then we were able to run them through our lab for a digestibility test.
0: How does that work? So there's no cow involved in that. It's a it's lab no. work. Tell Yo. me about that. Yeah.
2: So after you get them dried, you grind them all up, put them in these filter bags, and then there's a couple different chemicals that you use. There's an ADF solution and an NDF solution. And then you have a big, kind of mimics a cow's stomach. It's like a pressure cooker that they agitate in this solution for a couple of hours, or an hour, a little over an hour, and then you do a couple separate things. But the whole process takes about yeah. know, six hours or something like that, and a couple of days to let them dry out and.
0: And you did find that monoculture is not as um, beneficial as that diversity or that variety. Are there some native plants that are better for the cows than others?
2: Um, Yeah, based on my findings, there's certain species that are more digestible. And what that means is like there's just more percentage of the plant that's going to be used by the cow. So um, prairie foil was kind of the one that, hit the home field there, They it was the highest in digestibility, lowest in lignin percent, which is the percentage of material that's not digested by the cow.
0: <laughs> how do you hope that your research might be used? You're, first you're going to do, you're going to present this um, in an in, in event, as I understand it, but then beyond that, how do you hope that the, that the knowledge might help the ag community?
2: Yeah, I hope that more producers will see this and say, oh, these these things that I'm seeing in my pasture aren't a weed. Uh, it's a big problem for a lot of people look at a plant and it's not grass and they're like, oh, it's a weed. I'm going to go blanket spray my pasture. So we're hoping that more people are paying attention to what's native, what's supposed to be there versus what's an invasive weed and kind of seeing the benefits on the on their bottom end with maybe they're getting more economic value with the nutritional value added with these plants.
0: Yeah. Uh, what year are you at SDSU? How close are you to graduation?
2: I graduate in May. In May. All right.
0: Yes. What do you want to do next? <laughs> um, do you have thoughts um, on what kind of work you want to do?
2: Yeah, I actually have a job lined up with NRCS to work with producers doing this type of education, promotion type stuff.
0: Yeah, nice. Well, congratulations, Caitlin Presler, South Dakota State University. Thanks for stopping by and telling us about your research. And I suspect we'll be talking to you in the future as you continue this work. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. A vital institution for rural health care, especially in South Dakota, hits an important milestone this year. The University of South Dakota's Sanford School of Medicine began granting four-year medical degrees 50 years ago. Dr. Tom Ridgway is dean of the USD Sanford School of Medicine, and he's with us now from SDPB Studios on the campus of USD in Vermilion. Dr. Ridgway, welcome. Thanks for being here.
3: Good afternoon, Lori, and uh, thanks for having me.
0: All right, let's dive into half a century of history. Half a century of history, right? <laughs> Tell us, help us understand what the, the medical landscape, the medical education landscape was before this change was made. What was happening?
3: So the University of South Dakota had a two-year medical school that began in 1907. And after two years of study, every student had to be transferred to and established four-year medical school. So in 1972, actually 71, we were finding that less and less spots were available for these two-year graduates to move on. And think about this, Lori. in South Dakota in 1973, there was a little over 500 physicians in the state of South Dakota. We ranked last in physician to patient ratio in the country. So we were literally entering a crisis, and leaders were looking at all kinds of options. Would we combine a school with North Dakota and Mayo? Would we have a three-year school? Could we afford the cost of converting to a four-year MD granting program? And there was even discussion about saying, let's just eliminate the two-year school, and we might contract for 10 slots elsewhere. So it was a grave situation, And the bottom line is that there were many areas in South Dakota that received no health care, and they had no access. So this was the landscape when things were going before the legislature, beginning in 1972.
0: And as a reminder, there would have been no virtual connections. Um, There was no way, the the miles that you would have to travel to get any kind of health care there was no short-circuiting that with any kind of technology either.
3: There was absolutely none, and access, as you know, is critical. And not only was it the small, smallest rural communities, but places like Huron, Pier, mm-hmm. uh, hadn't had a new physician in 10 or 11 years. So clearly something had to be done.
0: Who were the people who stepped up at that moment and said, I'm going to fight for this aspect of it? It needs to be that we are training our doctors, that we have our own med school. We believe in our ability to do this, to, um, to fund it, and to get doctors into rural areas especially. Who were some of those early visionaries? In
3: 1972, it failed in the legislature. It failed again in '73. So in 1973, a special legislative committee on medical education was put together. And it was to be led by Senator Harvey Woolman. Harvey Woolman led the effort to look at all of the possibilities and came into the 1974 legislature with a plan. But we needed more than legislative leadership. The school needed a dean a visionary dean who could very much see the landscape, who would be trusted by the physicians around the state, as well as the legislature. So enter an individual who was a South Dakota native. He was the grandson of former Governor Peter Norbeck and had an MD degree from Harvard. He was an established pathologist in Sioux Falls by the name of Carl Wagner. Carl Wagner became dean in August of 1973. He traveled the state. He went to communities. He spoke with physicians in these towns. And I am told, uh, and, and everything I've learned, that between the leadership of Senator Harvey Woman and the integrity and the vision of Carl Wagner, they entered the 74 legislative session and there was a whole new optimistic approach and Senate Bill 30, which is what it was, was passed.
0: What was the price tag back then?
3: So that's really interesting, Lori. Um, at the time, they were looking at a total budget of $2.5 million. Now, most medical schools across the country had budgets of twenty. million to $25 million. So immediately people were saying, we can't do this. The appropriation was for $1.3 million, and the VA Medical Center had a large grant that actually helped support the start of the school. So if, if you think about it, there were two huge questions after this bill had been passed. Was this gonna break South Dakota's bank? Could we have a quality school with that small of a budget? And then secondly, would making us a four-year M.D. granting institution change the landscape? Would it allow for the quality health care in every region of South Dakota? These were two scary unknowns.
0: The stakes are incredibly high. How quickly was the, the group of leaders able to make traction and provide some kind of evidence or proof or enthusiasm that this might in fact
3: work? It was very, very swift and it was very effective. Dr. Wagner had garnered the support of key organizations such as the South Dakota State Medical Association and the Association of Hospitals. And there were key physicians across the state that bought in. The real price tag for these other medical schools was these huge university hospitals. So the vision was we would be a school without walls, meaning we would utilize facilities throughout the state of South Dakota. It was then Sioux Valley Hospital and McKinnon Hospital, the VA Medical Center in Sioux Falls, Sacred Heart Hospital in Yankton, and then soon-to-follow, was Rapid City Regional Hospital and the VAs in Fort Meade and Hot Springs. So immediately, Dr. Wegner was able to garner support from all of these systems. In addition, there were physicians in communities like Tyndall, DeSmet, Bridgewater. All of them bought on board. So we had students immediately going to these communities. These physicians were hungry to educate, to teach, and to give back. And so Dr. Wagner saw early success, and that made the legislature happy, and here we are today.
0: So you said at at this time we were ranking last in physician-to-patient relationships. Now South Dakota is one of the leaders in rural healthcare. In what ways? Help me understand how how you measure success today.
3: So as I told you, um, in 1972, there were 500 physicians in South Dakota. Today, over 2,200. Today, we are at about the national average for the physician-to-patient ratio. And in primary care physician-to-patient ratio, we are climbing to the point that by 2030, we will be well above the national average. We rank, Lori, in the 99th percentile for the percentage of our graduates that practice in a rural community. And then those are some metrics. I mean that you say can
0: that again. We rank in the 99th percentile
3: in the percentage of our graduates compared to all medical schools in the country that practice in rural areas. Wow. In other words, we are in the top 5 of the percentage of our graduates that are out there practicing medicine in rural communities.
0: So that does not happen without a deep commitment to rural practice. What are the ways that you see, Dr. Ridgway at the USD Sanford School of Medicine today that you continue to make that such a strong priority?
3: Well, first we know that if the first chance you're gonna to get to have a young student want to practice in a rural area is if they come from a rural area. And secondly, if they come from the state they're trained, South Dakota so in our admissions process we are very careful we get over 1100 applications per year for our school but uh, we have mandates on our admissions process where we only will interview and look at students that are either from south dakota or have strong south dakota ties right now 58 high schools are represented in our student body and they are from schools like the Sioux Falls Falls schools and Rapid City schools, but we've got Bottle, South Dakota, Lead, South Dakota. Uh, You name every small town and we have them. So that's the first predictor we've learned. If you have people that come from a rural community, there's a stronger chance they're going to want to go there. Secondly, we expose these students to experiences in these rural areas. They get a phenomenal education because these doctors in rural areas, they want to give back, they want to teach, and these students experience the entire spectrum of what it's like to practice in a rural area. One program that we began in 2013, it's called the FARM Program, Frontier and Rural Medicine. Students will spend their first two years studying the basics, the sciences, the physiology in Vermilion. But it's that third year where they have their first clinical experiences that we would put these students in Rapid City, in Yankton, or in Sioux Falls. The FARM program, we take 13 students and they are scattered to eight small clinical sites. Parkston is an example, Bill Bank is an example, Spearfish, Pier, and they are exposed to what a real rural practice is like. It has been incredibly successful. The goal was to put more primary care physicians back into South Dakota. The preliminary data looks outstanding. We are well above the national average in the percentage of these students who not only wanna come back to South Dakota, but they wanna come back to a small rural area. So, so all of these emphasis uh, put on that rural area um, really helps to focus. When I go to national meetings and, and, and we talk, a lot of these schools wanna talk to South Dakota because we've experienced it, we've done it. And uh, don't get me wrong, Lori, we're not there yet. We've still got mm-hmm. work to do. And the other thing I wanna emphasize is not only do we have good students practicing in rural areas, but some students say, no, they just don't want to do that. But wow, they come back as dermatologists, as general surgeons, and guess what? They're practicing in places like Pierre and in Mitchell. And even if they're in the Rapid City and the Sioux Falls, they're doing a tremendous amount of outreach, reaching these more rural communities. You mentioned technology earlier. We have that now. so. Some of these students will come back as specialists, but they are still giving back to the entire rural fabric that South Dakota has.
0: As you dive into, and if you're just tuning in, you're listening to In the Moment on SDPB, and my guest is Dr. Tim Ridgway, Dean of the USD Sanford School of Medicine. We're talking about 50 years of this school of medicine granting four-year medical degrees in south dakota when you look back at the legacy and the leadership of a dean dr carl wagner of a dean rod perry of some of the people who have come before you um, what are some of the ways that you're inspired by their vision or leadership as you have your own tenure and your own um you know vision to consider today
3: so i am an md because of the visionary Carl Wagner. Uh, And I actually had an opportunity to know Carl Wagner uh, when I was uh, early in the medical school as a career individual. Rod Perry is the one who brought me from clinical practice as a gastroenterologist into the medical school. He, He saw that I loved education and they had this position they opened up called Dean of Faculty Affairs. And mm-hmm. he said, Tim, you'd be perfect. I was nervous. I was scared. I knew I loved education, but this was a whole new gamut. I learned from Dr. Perry. Um, he, he just taught me more about what it means to be an educator. So you take, you take Carl Wagner and the kind of person he was, a native South Dakotan. I was from a small town in South Dakota. Uh, to watch Dr. Rod Perry and what he did. And Dr. Mary Nettleman followed mm-hmm. Dr. Perry. Dr. Nettleman was an outstanding dean and educator. So you take a little bit of, of every one of those people, but then tie it to what I am passionate about, to what I feel strongly needs to occur for us to educate the future people that are gonna be taking care of you and I. We celebrated last Friday night, and Dr. Perry and Dr. Nettleman were there. And Dr. Wagner's uh, wife was also there, Margaret Cash Wagner. And I have to tell you, um, it it was a special moment for me because (laughs) I knew that a lot of us in that room were there because of the the, the vision that these people set for us.
0: What is next for this medical school?
3: I told the group on Friday, number one, we don't forget who we are and what we are good at. So we don't shy away from our mission, but we have work to do. We need to continue to work and educate our students in modern-day healthcare to provide that access we talked about to the smallest rural communities. Telehealth is, I think, a major way to do that. But you can't just pick up technology and get a TV screen and make that happen. You you have to learn ways to reach these patients, to have one-on-one personable attention, but allow us to get to these areas and access and deliver the care that we need to do. We're looking at expanding our basic sciences in Vermilion. Teaching is different now. Instead of a bunch of facts and graphs and knowledge being thrown on a classroom eight hours a day, Make the patient the center of learning. That's where retention occurs. So restructuring our classrooms where there's active learning, where there's an actual presentation of a patient, let's talk about the science and how that works in this kind of arena. Let's talk about how we can empathize. I am proud that this school produces compassionate, caring physicians. I think that we've got tons of technology, wonderful, but it still comes down to How can that physician make these patients feel? Our students need to get that. So there's a lot of work going on in those areas. We have a Center for Rural Health Improvement. We're looking for funding for more grants to look at the disparities. South Dakota is a perfect example to look at healthcare disparities in different regions of the state. What can we do to level the playing field and make certain everybody gets the care they deserve? Mm.
0: Dr. Ridgway, Dean of the USD Sanford School of Medicine. A delightful conversation. We look forward to having you back for more initiatives in the future. But for now, congratulations on 50 years. I
3: appreciate it, Lori. Thank you for your time today.
0: You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I am Lori Walsh. Well, local artists will showcase their talents this weekend at the Black Art Bash 2024. This year's theme focuses on the contribution of black artists throughout history. Tyra Hawkins is treasurer of NAACP Sioux Falls and the coordinator for this event. And Julian Baudouin is vice president of NAACP Sioux Falls and Executive Director of South Dakota's African American History Museum. And they are both gathered around the microphones here in the Kirby Family Studio. Tyra, welcome. Thanks yes, for being here. thank you for having me. And Julian, welcome as well.
4: Yeah, thank you for having us.
0: All right, tell us a little bit about the event itself, Tyra. We're going to start with you because it seems when we say contribution of black artists throughout history, that is enormous, right? Yeah. <laughs> so how do you want to focus this particular event? Um, so I think... We really
5: just want all local artists, whether it be visual arts or any type of art, music, um, poetry, to feel included. Um, I think at first we kind of wanted to focus on, like, visual arts, painting, that type of thing. But then we were like, well, we have so much talent in Sioux Falls. Why not open it up to where everybody can feel included and be a part of this event? Yeah. So
0: who's invited to come? Have you got your artists lined up? Are you looking for audience members? What stage are you at in planning? Because this, uh, this is this Saturday. This yeah. is this
5: Thursday, yes. Thursday. So we are done planning. We have the location. Yes, it's Thursday, February 29th. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we have the location. It'll be um, at Dada Gastro pub and Icon Events in the Annex Room. Um, we have a couple of artists lined up, but we are definitely still looking for more. So mm-hmm. please feel free to reach out to us if you are interested in being a part of this
0: event. Julian, uh, you work with the history, and then at the same time you're working with this current, you know, who are the artists who are making history today? Tell us a little bit about um, that intersection for you.
4: Yeah, so for us at the museum, it's really important just to, to showcase the different, again, the different skill sets. Uh, around our city, but then also uh, a lot of the times we focus at at a museum on history, but we don't focus on the art part. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this was really an exciting opportunity for us to collaborate with the NAACP um, to showcase not just some of the things that we might have at the museum, some of those rotating uh, exhibits, but maybe even kind of showcase some of the things to come at the museum. We'd we'd love to work with these artists uh, who will be uh, there and available to put their art on display at the Washington Pavilion as well.
0: All right. Um, Oscar (coughs) Michaud comes to mind as one of South Dakota's great artists. Yep. Um, Are there others that you want to elevate from the past that we would say, like, hey, if you do not know who Oscar Michaud is, like, Google it now because you're going to be blown away by this man's film work. Yeah. In early cinema.
4: So one of the things with Oscar Michaud, people don't realize that he has an entire walk of fame out in Hollywood. Right. So he's 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 from South Dakota. Well, not from South Dakota, but he did a lot of his work here in South Dakota and he had a homestead here where. Uh, he really secluded himself to write a lot of those black and white films that we know of today. Um, and so uh, his his history uh, or really his presence that was felt worldwide was made just because he secluded himself in South Dakota. Um, and so, yes, we showcase people like Oscar. But uh, again, like one of the things that we really value, we have a rotating exhibit uh, that we do every three years. We really value the young artists of our time as well. So we want to tell the story of history, but we also want to showcase the future as well.
0: Yeah. At Tyra, I was on an airplane and there was a Hollywood producer seated next to me and uh, said where I was from, South Dakota. He wasn't super excited. And when I brought up Oscar <laughs> Micheaux, he was like, oh, that's right. He had forgotten that. Speak a little bit to this idea, not necessarily about Oscar, but about living here and finding, I mean, this man was doing work that was uh, so groundbreaking in the midst of the time that he lived historically? Are there things that you think that you see artists doing like, hey, this is different because you live here. This is different because you are experiencing life in Sioux Falls, South Dakota right now. It is influencing your art, and your art is influencing the rest of the community. Talk about that if you yeah.
5: I think it's interesting um, you say that because I'm actually from Tennessee. I've only lived here for a little less than two years. Um, But I have had the opportunity to meet a lot of local artists. Just the other day I went to Friends of the People at Full Circle Book Co-op. They do um, a poetry, What do you call it? Poetry Slam um, every, I think, third Thursday of the month. And it was very interesting. I had gone a couple of times, but just to see all the different artists, some people I had never seen before, just be able to kind of share their experiences, not only living in South Dakota, but just their experiences, I guess, in society as a whole. So I think that was very interesting. Um, Trying to think. I've been to a lot of different things. I went to um, another event at um, Dada one night where they were doing like horror stories and they were playing Uh um instruments to go along with the stories they were telling and that was really cool too so i think there are a lot of opportunities in sioux falls and i think that's kind of what this event looks to showcase is just all of the different opportunities that exist within our city Uh,
0: julian the arts can be a place to retreat and escape from the news of the day it can also be a way to engage with politics and the news of the day um, yep. We're in an election year. We've been through so much um, and culturally in the past few years with the pandemic, with the killing of George Floyd. And it seems to me that artists have been some of the people who have stood up and helped us think deeply about the times that we live in. What do you think the role of art is in that big and I don't want to put every artist in that box because some are like, no, I do not want anything to do with like social commentary right now. Yep. But what is the role of many artists who say, I need to reflect what's happening in the community and the culture in my art?
4: Yeah. Well, so first off, thank you for calling the, the murder of George Floyd exactly what it was. It was a killing. So I, I appreciate that. Um, from from the perspective of the museum, I would say uh, art is really the truest form of expression that you can that you can get, um, and so of course we as museum uh, directors we want to tell stories through the expression of art. Typically, when talking, especially with the younger generation of artists, you see that a lot of their social expression comes out in the form of whatever they're doing, whether it's music, uh, whether it is you know painting, uh, sculpting, wh- whatever that may be. Um, you know, sometimes they don't have the ability to speak with their, with their mouths. They don't have the ability to use their voice. Or they do, but they don't feel like they're getting their point across. Um, and so they, they turn to other forms of expression, such as art, uh, to, to really engage in their communities, to engage with those who are maybe outside of their communities. And it's, again, it's, for us, it's the truest form of not only expression, but also one of the truest forms of education, uh, and it allows people to just enter into a another form of reality they've never seen before. Mm.
0: All right, any final thoughts? The Black Art Bash happening Thursday, February 29th. It's at the Icon Lounge and Dada Gastro Pub. We're going to put more information on the event on our website at sdpb.org slash news. But uh, Tyra, anything you want to leave us with that you want to let people who are listening still want to engage in this? What should they know?
5: Yes, please come out. And once again, if you are a local artist that is maybe just hearing about this event for the first time, we are still looking for local artists to be a part of our event. Again, any type of art
0: you can contribute, we would love to have. All right. Hopefully this is not the, the last conversation we have. We've had Tyra Hawkins with us and Julian Baudouin, both with NAACP and some other places as well. But thanks so much. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. you. Well, usually when we invite guests from the Sanford Underground Research Facility onto the show, you can expect a conversation dealing with science far beneath the ground. Today we're going to stay on the surface to talk about a space dedicated to culture, history, and community. Changlashka Wakhan is the Ethno Botanical Garden at the Sanford Underground Research Facility. We're going to learn more about it from Rochelle Zenz, and she is Surf Project Lead for IDEA. That stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access. Rochelle is with us from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Rochelle, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. So happy to be here today. So we have had conversations about this uh, ethnobotanical garden before, but for people who aren't sure what is happening here, there's an update with how far your progress has come, but this conversation goes back a long ways what do you want people to understand about how you got to here today
6: oh gosh (laughs) well it's really just great Um, we've been working on this project for a really long time and doing a lot of work um, to fundraise for the project and so we were so excited this past summer when um, we were able to begin construction and that actually just wrapped up at the end of November, we uh, made it in time for before any of our winter weather came. So we were th- really thrilled with that timeline.
0: Yeah. What exactly is this garden and where is it at?
6: Yeah. So the ethnobotanical garden is um, based from a recommendation from our cultural advisory committee. And the cultural advisory committee really wanted a space on surf property where folks could reflect on um, the history of the land as well as a place to learn about native plants in this region. Um, and so we're just really excited. We're, um, having a planting event in June and, uh, it'll just really be a great, um, opportunity for folks in the region.
0: When you do some of this planning and the fundraising and the listening that goes into the project, what are some themes that have emerged for why this matters to people?
6: Um, Wow. There's there's so many different reasons for um, so many different people. I would say for our cultural advisory committee, it was really important um, for folks to have a place to reflect on um, the history of the region. Um, native American history, of course, goes um, way back and understanding some of those complex narratives throughout time. Um, and of course, we have gardeners in the region that really just want to understand more about the native plants in the region. And this can really be a space for them to explore those um, and learn more about the plants of the region.
0: Tell me about the the garden's name. I'm not sure uh, I pronounced it correctly. Yeah, go ahead.
6: Yeah. Yep, no, I'm, I'm still a Lakota language learner, so I don't want to um, say that I'm saying it perfectly either, but uh, Changleshka Wakan. And mm-hmm. so that um, roughly translates to sacred hoop. Um, so the garden is in a shape of a medicine wheel, um, and we will have different plants in each quadrant, um, and they are uh, plants that will hopefully thrive together. We're working with um, SDSU's Native Plant Initiative, as well as, as well as our Cultural Advisory Committee Chair, Ryland Sprague, who is a trained ethnobotanist to kind of re- um, to arrange the plants so that they do um, thrive as best they can.
0: One of the things about SURF is um, the way people come, scientists come from all over the world to do work in this place, um, so that's a new audience in some ways. What do you hope the visiting scientists or new scientists will take from the the prominence of this garden, and what's there once it continues to develop?
6: Um, So that's actually something that our visiting scientists have wanted to learn more about is the history and um, maybe not specifically the plants, but I think they'll be happy to see those. Um, So learning more about the history and being able to visit at the garden, Um, we have a lot of um, upcoming plans for some of our visiting scientists this summer to incorporate the garden so they're able to be in that space and explore it. What
0: are you hoping to um, sort of unwrap roll or unwind or introduce this summer, this spring, for people to to have connections to this new space? Like, what are some of the plans for, uh, you know, convening people?
6: Yeah, so um, it really won't uh, kick off until the summer. Of course, in Leeds, we have a lot more snow than we do down here in Rapid City. And so waiting for some of that to melt, um, but our first big event is going to be on June 12th, and we're going to have a community-wide planting event, um, so an opportunity for folks to come up and um, plant a plant at the garden, be able to see the garden. Um, we're going to have some entertainment as well um, with Sequoia Crosswhite, so it'll really be a great kickoff to the space. Um, for the remaining months, we're really looking to explore different topics from a variety of speakers um, on topics related science uh, to science to the garden, um, culture and history as well. So speaking to each of those individual topics each month over the summer. Oh, what, uh, what
0: has stood out to you from hearing from elders about the importance of this? I guess I just want to wrap up with a sense of, you know, the depth of, of connection and what it means to you personally.
6: I would say from the native community, we've really heard, um, a lot about the connection to home stake. So by um, many people in the native community, that wasn't necessarily um, a great thing that happened in the hills. But now that we're the Sanford Underground Research Facility, uh, we're able to take that space that existed in a mining capacity. And now that we're no longer doing mining, we're extracting for knowledge. And um, so seeing kind of that negative um, turn into more of a positive for the community is something that we're all really looking forward to having.
0: All right. It is called Jungleska-Wakon. It is the Ethnobotanical Garden at the Sanford Underground Research Facility. And my guest has been Rochelle Zenz, who is the Surf project lead for IDEA. And that stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access. Any final thoughts, Rochelle?
6: No, we're just all really excited. I'm glad to get the word out, and we hope to see some folks up at the garden uh, this summer. All right. We thank
0: you for stopping by. We'll talk to you again. Thank you. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you tomorrow. We are going to hear lawmakers in their own words discuss a bill about who can do non-invasive procedures regarding optometry and ophthalmology. That's been a hot topic this year in PEER, so we've got an update on that. We'll also have our Prairie Dot guests. We're going to welcome some Women of Change speakers to the program as part of this ongoing programming that deals with the National Geographic Exhibit. On women's history that is in Sioux Falls, and our teachers will gather to talk about how to forgive that teacher in your life who maybe was not the best example of an educator. How do you forgive the red pen and the teacher who wielded it? That's on tomorrow's Teacher Talk Conversation on In the Moment. From all of us at SDPB, we thank you for listening.